Welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Manjit Baines, a director at Bespoke Consultancy Services, an award-winning independent consultancy firm in Leeds, West Yorkshire. Manjit, welcome. Great to have you on the programme today. Thank you very much, Scott. Nice to be here. Fantastic. Now, if we dive straight into uh, things, um, if one says the word leader, Manjit, what does that word actually mean to you? Um, I think it's the person who knows where everybody needs to go to, but collectively collectively takes people with them. Um, And it's also about making sure that you've got buy-in and everybody knows what the common goal is and sort of like cheering them along. Yeah, absolutely. I think... um, being proactive and having that plan, that sense of direction for everybody involved in a team is a really important quality of uh, being a leader, isn't it? Absolutely. And also recognising the good in people too, because they're all good at lots of different things. Um, but you've got, got to make the best of people and, you know, and appreciate them. You certainly do. Now, in the current climate, with everything going on at the moment in the wake of the COVID-19 outbreak, of course, that's really brought the topic of effective leadership under the microscope. And we've seen some real contrasting approaches from um, the world's governments, for example. So um, we have, say, Giuseppe Conte over in Italy, who put the whole country on lockdown really quickly. And then over here, yeah. although talks have been mooted of similar things happening, we have taken much more of a less hands-on approach so far. So the money's there, there are procedures in place, but we are in many ways sort of waiting to see um, what happens. And if we take that away from politics for a moment, which approach do you generally prefer when dealing with difficulties? Do you prefer to sort of dive straight in and get on top of things or do you tend to let things play out a bit and see how they develop before you take action? Yeah, I think it's um, very much driven by behaviour and so if you sort of look at um, different cultures they do things in different ways and um, that's just the same way as it is in organisations. Um, organisations behave um, in different ways depending on their value systems and I think um, when you've got something sort of you know really sort of like we've got with the coronavirus I think that's when you actually need very very good leadership to explain why you're doing things, what's important, and how you're taking the people with you. And I think that's really, really important. So that's the sort of approach I would take. For sure. Um, Now, you say, um, of course, the approach that you would take in that situation. Um, Drawing on your own experience as a leader in business yourself, um, do you have any advice for leaders who are facing difficult situations? Absolutely. I think what um, a lot of um, leaders need to do, especially in SME sector, is to really understand what their risk exposure is, but also look at the opportunities um, and really sort of, you know, take your people with you, you know, be honest with them, tell them, you know, we're all sort of um, quite frightened, this is what's going on. But as an organisation, what we need to do is X, Y, Z. And it's not going to happen by itself. You know, everybody needs to do this collectively. And I think if people can see the light, you know, people are actually very, very good. Yeah, for sure. It's um, important to recognise, especially as a leader, that it's not just a one man or one woman show, is it? It's very much a team yeah. effort, as you say there. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um 
in terms of the the qualities that we've discussed that are important in leadership figures, do you think those sorts of qualities are things that great leaders are born with, or do you think that's something that can be developed as one goes through life? Yeah, I think it's very much around the environment you're in, the value system you have, the belief system you have, the experiences of life itself, um, which helps some people become more resilient. So I think you're not born with these qualities. I think everyone can be a good leader, but it depends what you're sort of exposed to. And I fundamentally think your value system and your belief system has a lot to do with it as well. You know, because, you know, you can either sort of be very optimistic because you'll know everything's going to be fine or you could be the complete opposite and be pessimistic, um, which would obviously drive your business in a different way. And I think with leaders, they know you do have risks, but you definitely have opportunities as well. Absolutely. It's finding that balance between obviously seeing the risks and the opportunities that are there, especially in the uh, the face of adversity. Um Interestingly enough, Manjit, I would like to sort of touch on this. Growing up, did you always imagine that you would end up in a leadership position yourself? Um, I never thought of it as a leadership um, position, but I mm. always knew that I was always the leader of the pack. Um, you know, it's, it's quite funny really when you sort of reflect back on what you were like when you were younger. Um, I can definitely say, if you sort of ask my friends, I was definitely the leader of the pack and say, we're going to do this. And for some bizarre reason, they always followed. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Um, would you um, also, we, of course, we talked about some advice already, but for somebody who is about to sort of start their first day, for say, in a leadership role, would you have any advice to perhaps give to them in that context? Yeah, I would say don't be hard on yourself. I would sort of say, you know, it's um, to sort of loosen up a bit um, to sort of make sure that you've got that self-belief and do the right thing. Um, and I think the important thing is to recognise it's not a sort of um, a processy thing. I think if you use your gut more, you can tend to sense what's the right thing to do. Mm. Now, a lot of examples of good leadership, particularly in the context of SMEs and business, um, does often go under the radar, perhaps because it doesn't get the same media prominence as, say, sports personalities or people in the show business. Um, so with that in mind, do you think that leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in this country? Um, well, I think everybody's a leader in their own way. Um, so it's, I think it's good to sort of not give yourself a pat on the back or give the workforce a pat on the back because you wouldn't really have anything without them. So my approach tends to be different. It's, you know, it doesn't really matter who's a leader or not a leader. That's just a label. It's more about having those connecting relationships. Yeah, absolutely. So people who can make those um, connections and people who are very good people, people, as it were, um, are those the sorts of people that you would look at in a recruitment context as well? Yes, absolutely. Because I think when you can bring out the best in other people, you bring out the best in yourself. And I think if you're regimented, it, oh, you know, it puts everybody off, doesn't it? Yes, for sure. Now, we talked about sort of your leadership style or touched on that a little bit. Um, are there any examples of leadership figures throughout history, living or dead, who've maybe influenced that style of leadership that you feel you have? Um, well, actually, it's, um, many years ago, probably 20 odd years ago now, um, we I had a really good MD when I was working at Yorkshire Water mm. um, called Kevin Whiteman, and he was just brilliant. He would talk to anyone, he'd discuss anything, and 
that's sort of really sort of made me sort of think, well, actually, that's the sort of leader you'd want to be, somebody that you can go up to and talk. Um, but I think for leadership, it's really important to know what's going on on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think he'd actually say, given everything going on at the moment, if he walked into the office at Bespoke and addressed the staff literally today? I think he'd sort of tell all the staff that he's, you know, he wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for them. What a great job they're doing. It's a difficult task, but this is where we're going and we're, gonna, we're in it together um, and that's what we're going to do. And then obviously get feedback. Yeah, that sounds like a really, really good approach. Um, I'm conscious of, of course, running out of time, Manjit, but before we do um, go about wrapping things up, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself for Bespoke Consultancy Services and what you hope to achieve in that time. Um, well, I sort of switched tactics, actually, with the current situation as mm. it is, um, and obviously specialising in risk management. I've actually today created a service for SMEs of where I can actually help them virtually to sort of look at their risks and opportunities within their organisations because I think it's really important for people to realise it's not all doom and gloom. You've got to look at things differently because there's plenty of opportunities out there maybe do things differently um, and put in sort of really effective action plans for how they're going to do that. Absolutely. And let's hope that a lot of people do take that positive outlook into the next few months as well as the situation goes on. And we can hope that yeah. everything starts to uh, blow over and sort of pick up again in the uh, the coming months. Um, Manjit, yeah. it's been um, an absolute pleasure as well um, having you on the uh, the programme to discuss these um, issues today. Um, and it would actually be fantastic perhaps to get you back on in a few months time just to see how things have uh, panned out and whether that has indeed been uh, borne out. So thanks very much um, again for your time. Right. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. No, it's been an absolute pleasure, as I say. Um, we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... 
Warney got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray 
looked like he'd aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, you know, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? 
Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda and you know if and when that happens that that should be a problem for a leadership and if it isn't a problem then you're not doing your but job absolutely um and with, with all that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because... They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, 
and we had to move it. In fact, we didn't have to move the times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is 
in some ways more pressing is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, 
a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.